1: one of the the challenges that australia has now is facing a choice between whether or not we want china to be a factor behind why we would engage and how we would engage in the region or whether it bleeds into being the, the entire justification for why we would engage in aid and development
0: papua new guinea solomon islands they don't want to choose they don't want to choose between australia and china they don't want to choose between us and china they want to be their own sovereign country that is benefiting the the most from whatever is on the table
2: welcome to the national security podcast brought to you by the anu national security college with support from policyforum.net in this episode ceo of the development intelligence lab brady rice and senior fellow at the international security program at the center for strategic and international studies errol yabuke Join Policy Director at the ANU National Security College, Dr William Stoltz, to discuss the intersection of security and development issues in the Pacific region. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Brady, Errol, thank you both for joining me.
1: Thanks, Will. Great to be here.
2: Thanks, Will. So you've both worked and researched extensively across issues at the intersection of development, conflict, mitigation and security. These these themes have become pretty topical for Australian policymakers and US policymakers recently, um, not least of all because of events in the Pacific. So I think this is going to be a really timely conversation but I want to start first on, I guess, the intersection between development assistance and conflict mitigation. Errol, the United States is is obviously, you know, it's an enormous provider of aid and um, economic assistance for developing and, and fragile countries around the world. So I understand there's been some significant changes in how the United States approaches this task, um, namely in the form of the Global Fragility Act, I think I'm getting that right, um, so perhaps you can start us off by explaining by explaining what the fragility act is um and perhaps how it's seeking to change america's uh previous approach to things like conflict mitigation
0: Sure yeah, thanks will and thanks again for having me on i I like how you said it's the United States um is trying a new approach here because I think that's what this is both in terms of its trying nature and the fact that this is a this is a Really focused on process and changing the way that the US government thinks about tough places. It's not necessarily opening up unlimited amounts of cash to throw at a problem in places experiencing fragility. Um, this is so uh, in 2019, the US Congress passed um, the Global Fragility Act. It was signed into law by then President Trump and with bipartisan support, um, deep support from Republicans and Democrats, which continues today. The um, Biden administration uh, recently sort of jump-started the implementation of this by launching what we call in shorthand the Global Fragility Strategy. It's got a longer name um, uh, that includes words like peace and stability and things like that. But it's really meant to to be a blueprint at the 30,000-foot level of what the U.S. can and perhaps should be doing in places experiencing fragility. Now, the the most eagerly awaited part of this was where they were going to try to do this first. And it's important to say uh, right off the bat that this is meant to be uh, uh, changing the way that the U.S. government approaches these issues, primarily, and Australians will understand this, primarily by making sure that the left hand is talking to the right hand within government and those hands are talking to the feet and they're talking to the heads and just everybody's playing in the interagency sandbox a little bit better than, than we have in the past. Um, and so of course you can't start with, you know, all the places around the world that are tough and require stabilization and, and, um, you know, can be classified in, in some way as fragile. And so they had to pick some places. and, And so the five areas that they've picked are, Coastal West Africa, Libya, Mozambique, Haiti, and uh, I think m- most relevant to your Australian audience, Papua New Guinea. Mm.
2: No, it's 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 a fascinating um, and probably quite a prudent way to undertake it, um, Bridie. I'm interested in your views as someone you know who's studied various different approaches to development assistance, um, and you're currently in DC at the moment, so you've probably got a good perspective on these things. You know, American power and responsibilities around the world are pretty stretched at the moment, and and I think that's probably reflected in what Errol's describing there about this this need to kind of triage where they focus. So, you know, how, how hopeful do you think we can be that the US can kind of implement this more sophisticated approach to development um, for conflict mitigation?
1: Yeah, well, it's definitely a question that is on the minds of a lot of the people I'm chatting to here in Washington, but also in Port Moresby as well, Um, I think there's something really exciting about the ambition of the global fragility strategy. and, And it's something I've been looking at over the last couple of years as it's been developing, because for us in Australia, this is I mean, this is the most ambitious attempt to be serious about that all tools of statecraft rhetoric that we've been hearing certainly out of the coalition but also out of our Labor government at home as well. And when we're saying all t- tools of statecraft, I can't think of another piece of, uh, of foreign policy that is attempting to bring those tools together, as Errol's saying, get people talking to each other, make sure the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. Um, other than this. So, I guess on the one hand, I'm hearing um, excitement. I'm hearing planning teams being sent into Port Moresby. I'm hearing interagency roundtables that are properly trying to discuss not just what can development bring to the table, but what can a Defence Force do when it comes to fragility? Um, What can the State Department do? What can our diplomats do? And really trying to harness the best of each of those to make more than the sum of its parts. So I guess that's the optimistic view. And from the Canberra perspective, I'm watching this very, very closely because, of course, the rubber will hit the road on its implementation in Papua New Guinea. Um, but I'm also hearing the typical response that, you know, any bureaucrat would give you when a brand new piece of legislation um, and a massive strategy and a whole heap of political weight is put behind something, and that is, oh, a bit of a sigh, a bit of a, oh, it's it might just be another piece of paper Paper. Let's see how it goes. So I'm completely going to hedge, um, hedge my bets on this one. Well, and say on the one hand, this is exciting, um, but we know, we know from the UK, we know from the US, we know from Australia just how hard it is to genuinely coordinate agencies. And in a place where the U.S. has less experience like Papua New Guinea, I don't think we can overestimate those challenges. So I'm excited, um, but I think the jury's out on how this would work. And I think the U.S. knows that. They're taking their time on this planning.
0: Well, I've, I've got a um, – if, if you'll indulge me, I've got another uh, poor analogy here. And it's uh, essentially the U.S. government has been oriented towards uh, response. When something happens, we respond. And quite frankly, we respond with force better than any country in the world. Um, And and we've certainly embedded civilians with that response. I've myself worked in Iraq and Afghanistan and South Sudan and Ethiopia and Somalia and some other places. And I think what this is trying to do, I I would agree with everything Bridie is saying. I think the other thing that you hear from diplomats is what this is trying to do is you're you're not going to prevent conflict over a 10-year period that this global fragility strategy is, is meant to be implemented over a 10-year period and you're not going to prevent conflict in all of those places you may get the interagency to talk to each other better but and here's where the analogy comes in essentially you've had a super tanker or you know a massive aircraft carrier that's sort of pointed towards responding and then you've got this tiny little tugboat that is the Global Fragility Act, that's trying to slowly but surely and very earnestly kind of reorient us a little bit more towards a posture of conflict prevention. And I think that's that's really the goal over the next 10 years. It sounds ridiculous almost that that is what we're hoping to accomplish in 10 years. But as people who've worked in and around government know these things take time, you know, and we need to develop new muscles. And that's what this is meant to do.
1: Errol, you're spot on on this. I mean, at a macro level, what we're seeing from the U.S. government is a recognition that only responding or marshalling all forces in response is no longer going to cut it. And I feel as though after Afghanistan, Iraq, all the, the reflections that have gone on, um, with it has come a renewed sense that we need to work longer harder and across longer longer time horizons as well if we actually want to prevent the sort of fragility that ultimately becomes conflict. And for Australia I think this is really interesting um, because in a lot of aid agencies or a lot of foreign policy establishments in the UK and the US, you can almost carve up your international assistance amongst a few buckets. And and of course, this is a complete oversimplification, but you sort of have your classic development assistance, right, health, education, inclusive economic development. You've then got your humanitarian responders, right? A crisis happens, we come in and respond. We've got stabilization missions, you know, in Australia, think East Timor, think, think the Solomon Islands as well. Um, But in the UK and the US, you have something else and it's this big bucket of amazing thinkers and practitioners who walk across government in, in, I guess, that conflict prevention or that stability or that peace building frame of mind. And in Australia, Australia actually used to lead the World Bank Working Group on fragility. We, I think we managed to poach some of the best of the best from the UK to work on conflict prevention and fragility. We And this work takes not just boots on the ground and smart boots on the ground, but it takes a hell of a lot of analysis to work out what are the drivers of fragility and conflict. And in recent times, we, we've we stepped away from that type of work in Australia. And so what we have in, in Canberra is largely... A community of amazing development practitioners and policymakers. We've got strong humanitarian response. Um, Stabilisation maybe if we need it, though not on a scale uh, that the US has. But really, we don't, we don't talk about Papua New Guinea as a fragile country. We don't have a fragility strategy. We don't necessarily even have a conflict prevention strategy either. So this is a really big difference um, between how the US is coming into Papua New Guinea um, and how Australia is looking at the region and how we marshal our attention um, towards things like conflict prevention.
2: So it sounds like there's potentially some um, lessons to be learned or observed um, as the United States rolls out this new approach. Um, Certainly this this idea of like greater agency, um, interagency cooperation and a kind of more joint approach does tend to strike me that perhaps that might be a bit easier to achieve in the Australian context given it's a much smaller system um but i suppose we'll see see how the americans go first with it so i'm i'm interested to kind of <clears throat> focus on the events in in this region and to um really get your response i i suppose to um you know the the dominating kind of strategic focus which is which is um china's kind of counter counter development proposal so to speak and and the kind of all consuming way that great power competition can kind of dominate these discussions are you Are you concerned that the focus on China and geostrategic competition is perhaps like sucking the oxygen out of um, other important challenges to the peaceful development of so-called fragile states? Or perhaps alternatively, is it actually making policymakers kind of more alive to the urgency of development and conflict mitigation and the need to put in long-term strategies? So I'm thinking perhaps, for example, the this new initiative, this um, Indo-Pacific economic framework for prosperity that was, um, launched a couple of weeks ago, you know, that, that perhaps may not have come about if it wasn't for the focus on the, um, kind of great power geo- geoeconomic, uh, uh, geopolitical competition. Um, Errol, I'm interested in perhaps your response to that proposition.
0: Yeah. In the United States, um, w- with a lot of these issues, you cannot take politics out of the equation. I think when you when it comes to implementing policy, um you can sometimes take politics out, but I think with something like a 10-year strategy, you you have to keep congress engaged and and therefore you have to have different angles through which to address some of these big challenges. And and it's became clear during the Trump administration that Uh, a a risen China or competition with a risen China was the entry point for most Republicans um, to be engaged and interested and worried about um, issues of foreign policy. And I think you saw some things like the Global Fragility Act it wasn't solely because of China. I think it's uh, uh, largely the Global Fragility Act got passed, I think, in large part because of years and years and years of advocacy by the peace-building community that resulted in um, significant education on Capitol Hill of members of Congress of saying, look, we need to reorient this super tanker. We need this tugboat. Um, and But I think one of the things that... Uh, helped it get over the finish line was geostrategic competition with China. And the fact that China is not just competing, but oftentimes the only game in town in a lot of these places. And so when it comes to the the selection of the countries, uh, look, you can ask US government officials what the how these countries were selected. And I get lots of people asking like, why Papua New Guinea? Why Mozambique? We'll never know the full answer. Uh, my educated guess is that um, China's increasing interest in the Pacific islands was not an insignificant factor in the selection of Papua New Guinea. I think the presence of Australia, Australia's largest overseas mission is in, uh, Papua New Guinea. It's larger than Washington. It's larger than Jakarta. And I think that was not an insignificant factor. I think we have a close and, and you, you know, getting closer by the day relationship with with Australia. And I think the fact that y'all were there played a, played a bit, pretty big role in this. So I would say China is a factor here. I don't think it's necessarily the only driving force anymore. Um, but as I don't know Australian politics as well as I know US politics, but things here, messaging can kind of change depending on who who's uh, pulling the levers of power.
1: Errol, that's a really interesting point that you described because it's something that has struck me three weeks into Washington attending all these meetings and roundtables, that it feels as though that China factor that you talk about getting the strategy over the line is a factor but is not the reason for being behind, for example, U.S. aid and development work or conflict prevention work like this. Um, I think, Will, your, your question really boils down to, you know, has China made this type of work more relevant? And, you know, having, having gone through the last couple of elections in Australia, I can tell you being an aid and development um, advisor or, or a strategist is, is not a popular kind of job and yet this time coming into the election, of course, as the Solomon Islands deal broke out, of course, um, as things got hot, absolutely this notion that Australia needed to step into the region to support the development aspirations of our neighbours or they might go looking elsewhere crystallised in the most powerful way. Um, but I think one of the the challenges that Australia has now is, is facing a choice between whether or not we want China to be a factor behind why we would engage and how we would engage in the region or whether it bleeds into being the reason reason or, or I guess, the the entire justification for why we would engage in aid and development. And I think that is a dangerous piece of the strategic pie that Australia really needs to sort out and can sort out in a new development strategy process. Um, But I think that the the US is a little more clear-headed whether or not Australia would take the same position is up for grads. But the US is very, very clear-headed about how it will use its aid program vis-a-vis China and it is all about fostering the kind of open societies and resilience and free media and shining the light on on coercion and corruption and governance and fragility that we're talking about here um, as a way to offer countries a choice would be the current language. That is, for example, very different to a choice uh, facing other countries or in Australia too about competing on the basis of, of infrastructure or, or playing whack-a-mole when something goes wrong and being reactive. So I think... That there's a lot of work for Australia to do in that space, but I, I and I think I'm com- quite confident that that is happening um, in in the halls of Canberra. But it's certainly not a well-informed public debate at the moment.
2: We'll be right back.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right?
2: Just to kind of stay on that 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 proposition of the choice that faces Pacific countries, and and to you know stay on this topic of China's engagement with the Pacific, you know we, we saw during um, Foreign Minister Wang Yi's um, recent tour of the region the kind of presentation by China of a of a comprehensive plan for development and security assistance at a kind of whole whole of region level, you know and. The issues around that are probably fairly intuitive to, to most of us, most of those people listening, but to kind of play devil's advocate for a moment, and particularly from the perspective of the Pacific Island countries that we're, we're talking about and the development objectives we're talking about, why is China's plan a bad thing? You know, in the absence of clear alternatives, why not sign up to these propositions? You know, if only the United States is only just now kind of coming around to taking a kind of um, whole of Nation approach to these things, and Australia is kind of still lagging. If you're a Pacific Island country leader, why not sign up to a comprehensive proposition like this? If if you're trying to achieve the kind of development objectives that we're talking about,
0: yeah, I, I think this is an excellent question. And and I, when Bridie used the word choice, it it um, your listeners can't see me cringe because they're listening to this, not watching me, but they're was a a framework that was uh, being tossed around during the Trump administration here in the United States that was a clear choice. and us Agency for International development uh, used this a lot. you know there's a clear choice between us and some boogeyman somewhere else that of course was China. And I think what you're seeing is is a lot more nuanced of an approach by the Biden administration. They would never come out and say, um, China is the reason that we're in Papua New Guinea and you know we're interested in anti-corruption because it's a counter to China, et cetera. I think the reason that you have this more nuanced tone is because one of the things that we learned during the Trump administration, and a lot of US government officials that are in political positions now were outside at think tanks like mine, um, and we're, we're sort of listening to all of these countries bristle. At the idea of clear choice. They don't want to choose. Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, they don't want to choose. They don't want to choose between Australia and China. They don't want to choose between US and China. They want to be their own sovereign country that is benefiting the the most from whatever is on the table. I think for for us, us being the United States, and I won't speak on behalf of Australia, but for us, it is we didn't want China to be the only game in town. Because if you're a developing country, say a Pacific Island nation or whatever, and you have a choice between Chinese investment that comes with strings attached, um, perhaps even authoritarian strings attached, and nothing you're going to take that development with strings, right? And so we we are trying to present a choice without actually forcing people to make a choice and in, in using perhaps a little bit more carrots than sticks. Now, we're talking more broadly about development here rather than just sort of fragility and, and stabilization and things. But I think that's it, um, part of what is happening here in the United States. And, and perhaps that's something that Australia... Um, can learn from as well because and and i'm sure the australian diplomats are are hearing this as much as the u.s diplomats are like don't make us choose you know we're not going to come out and say anything bad about china because we need their roads and bridges as much as we need your you know financial investment and your companies to come and invest and you know the extractive industries to do their thing
1: Hmm. well i think that question you know why not sign up is is the right one. And I'm not always convinced that we've had the humility to to ask ourselves or really listen as to why. So even, for example, the recent Economic Framework Partnership that was – that was signed, what we know from a lot of the the countries in the Indo-Pacific around what they were after was actually market access to the U.S. Um, That hasn't been forthcoming in that framework. Similarly, when when I go and speak to, to colleagues in Papua New Guinea about the China proposition, quite often they'll say things to me around the ideology of the China engagement. It is a South-South positioning. It is a, we are like you. We have suffered colonial uh, colonialism like you. We understand like you that we would like to improve our own future as well. These are very, very different starting points to where um, aid and development in places like Australia or the United States have have really come from. So I think that question around, you know, why, why shouldn't countries sign up? Why wouldn't they? What happens if they do? And then what is the, the value proposition of Australia in these countries requires a little bit of soul searching. And that's that's hard, right? We're talking about rapid budget cycles, rapid decisions. Um, I think Richard Maud recently described Australia drinking its foreign policy challenges out of a fire hose. You know, we're not in a perfect world making these calls at all. Um, so, I don't think it's as simple as, hey, just listen a little more to the Pacific. Um, I think there's got to be some seriously deep analysis around what the opportunities and the drivers of development are in the Pacific. Um, and and good honest look at what Australia should offer because at the moment we're kind of trying to offer everything where they're on health where they're on education where they're on infrastructure where suddenly they're on direct budget support where they're on jobs and all the rest of it I hope that uh, all these pilots um, that are flourishing at the moment have some good metrics about about them because otherwise Will, we're not going to answer your question um, why not sign up to China why sign up to ours
2: well, to kind of drill down, I suppose you know we've been we've been speaking in general terms about the development challenges facing the Pacific, but perhaps to to go a little bit more specifically, you know, Errol, you mentioned the the um, Fragility Act kind of has a ten a year kind of um, strategic um, perspective of when it wants to achieve its goals. I mean, what actually are the development challenges that we should be prioritising and focusing on the most when it comes to, I suppose, the Pacific country uh, Pacific region. Um, Generally, but perhaps in particular, the you know PNG, which is the largest by population um, country in the Pacific region.
0: I'll answer that by saying what I think is going to happen, and then by saying what I think should be happening, and and those aren't necessarily the the same things on on every account. So, what I think will happen is. That um, Papua New Guinea has a um, an unfortunate history and current reality of violence against women, uh, great amounts of gender inequality. Um, I the more I research Papua New Guinea, the more I realize that this is a is a fundamental barrier to um, not only economic growth but also uh, sort of contributor to state fragility. Um, as a quick aside, I, I almost never use the term fragile state. Um, because if you experienced uh, the January 6th insurrection in the United States, you might call us a fragile state. So I, I think um, elements of fragility that involve the state are present in almost every country. Uh, I would argue in both of our countries as well. Um, and, and I think that's true for Papua New Guinea. It may exist more places, but there's probably some uh, elements of stability. So, I, uh, you know. Aside from the aside, I think the US government is going to focus on this gender-based violence thing because it's an issue, but also because we kind of know what to do with that. We we've done a lot of that programming around the world and and when we involve ourselves in things like development and humanitarian aid and stabilization, it's very project based. It's very like, what do we do? You know, who do we fund? And what are those people going to do? And I think that that is probably where we're headed with this. Now, what I think should happen and is not necessarily incongruous with what I just said, but but Papua New Guinea has a, a severe crisis of governance, um, it, it seems, and, and there's an election coming up um, and it remains to be seen not only what the outcome of that is, but whether that outcome is going to be accepted by... Um, folks, and, and what the reaction to that outcome is going to be. There are several breakaway regions, at least one of which could be um, an independent country in the not so distant future. At least try to become an independent country. And so there's these sort of fundamental issues of governance and and sort of government capacity and and state fragility that exist. And the U.S. is not coming in with a whole, you know treasure chest of money uh, australian investment in terms of dollars is is going too far dwarf the united states uh investment for the foreseeable future if not forever in papua new guinea but the united states does come in with some clout on uh and, and sort of ability to to flex its diplomatic muscles um both in the multilateral system, sort of bring Papua New Guinea into the the fold in the international system, but also just you know on anti-corruption, on good governance, on you know simple things like let's get three bids when there's a when when there's a, um, a, a construction project going on, things like that. I, I think we're we're very good at that, um, and I think those are kind of the muscles that we need to bring to to Papua New Guinea as well, because there are some pretty fundamental. Um, governance challenges that don't seem to be getting any better and could, um, by what I understand, get get a little bit worse.
1: Errol and I are certainly singing from the same song sheet on on this one. I spent a number of years um, very, very luckily working inside the, the Papua New Guinean Department of Justice with an amazing group of, of reformers there. Um, and... In that time, it became very clear to me that you could throw all the projects, all the funding, all the bright ideas, all the amazing legislation and policy at Port Moresby that you wanted. Um, but if you did not attempt to tackle the fact that anywhere between 300 and four hundred million dollars is ripped out of that economy every year this is money that should be going to health and education this is money that should be going to gender-based violence heck this is money that should be going to a police force to to help it uh, manage its own elections as well, if you can't tackle that systemic systemic problem in a place like Papua New Guinea, then i'm not sure how you would ever go around you know developing a high impact project in one particular province right so this this meta crisis of corruption of governance of statehood in papua new guinea i think is something that we we sometimes both catastrophize, but also don't take seriously when it comes to working out how to support. And I think there are a couple of exciting signs very early in the US approach on Papua New Guinea. One is that they're not being completely blinkered by Port Moresby, right? Papua New Guineans are saying, get out of the capital, see our country, learn about us, Um, sit with us uh, in the village and see what really makes this country tick because it's not just the institutions you see in Port Moresby. There's all sorts of informal power dynamics. Um, I think the other one is that uh, this piece of foreign policy has the opportunity to force these agencies to come to the table and see what they can offer. And on corruption, the US risk appetite when it comes to anti money laundering and asset recovery, these are the the technical ways that you try and recover that $300 and $400 million that, by the way, doesn't always stay in Papua New Guinea. It might be flying around New York or Cairns or Sydney or Manila or Hong Kong. This sophisticated transnational way that places like the U.S. invest in anti-money laundering, asset recovery, anti-corruption work. Similarly, again, how they invest in investigative journalism um, and the sorts of things that shine a light on corruption. I think that's an exciting opportunity um, that a lot of reformist uh, and emerging leaders in Papua New Guinea would welcome from the U.S. They would welcome that classic um, opening up of, of, of civic space. And I think from Australia's perspective, it would be nice to have the U.S. in there as well because sometimes bilaterally it's tricky to tackle those gnarly issues of corruption and working um, working in partnership with places like the U.S. is, is just smart policy for everyone. So, um, I think there's some really exciting subnational stuff that will come out of this and there is no doubt that gender inequality is a major driver um, of fragility and we also know that investing in women is investing in peace as well, right? So this is common sense, great stuff, um, not without its implementation challenges. But personally, I think it would be an absolutely missed opportunity for the US not to be thinking carefully and maybe not in year one, but thinking carefully about how it brings its diplomatic might um, to the table in subtle ways, messaging from ambassadors, discussions in the hotel lobbies of Port Moresby with American businesses. At some point, we have to crack the conversation around corruption in Papua New Guinea. Um, and that shouldn't be the job of one donor alone. That should be the job of donors working in concert with amazing civil society leaders in Papua New Guinea who really care about this and want a different future of their country. And they don't want it off the back of an aid program, they want it off the back of a really Accountable government, and I think that would be a really exciting development.
2: Yeah, I mean that um, that corruption figure you mentioned is is really really quite staggering. But um, there is a really hopeful message there, I suppose, to achieve um, a really effective, coordinated approach. If our uh, Australia, United States, and perhaps other countries can work together in a, in a strategic fashion to kind of prioritise and triage our efforts accordingly. I mean, from observing, obviously, it's still very early days in the introduction of this new global fragility approach. Um, but to both of you, I mean, are you observing that there is a sufficient degree of kind of strategic focus and coordination between countries in their approach to PNG? Because it strikes me that if I'm a government official sitting in a Papua New Guinean department and I'm getting multiple different approaches from different governments um, on different issues, um, that could perhaps overwhelm the capacity of of my system to actually take advantage of the various um, initiatives that are being put forward.
1: Ah, uh, I could talk forever on on U.S. Australian cooperation. <laughs> um, no, on a more serious note. Um- I think you you got to start exactly with that will right. How is a Papua New Guinean leader um, who is invited to 24 workshops from 27 different donors every week going to handle the US coming into town right? Um, and how is the US going to handle coming into town when the US US modus operandi is generally in these sorts of situations where they are the dominant presence, they're established on the ground, they know who's who in the zoo, where to go, who to contact to get stuff done, right? That's not going to be the experience of the United States as they increase their presence in Port Moresby. So naturally enough, and I think it's common sense for Papua New Guinea, it's common sense for DC and Canberra planners to be thinking already about US-Australian cooperation. And we actually saw. Or an MOU signed between USAID and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Canberra a year or two ago, um, now articulating exactly that that there was benefits in US and Australia working out how to work in these environments, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, right? So it's definitely on the radar. And I think being here already in DC, Errol and his team are doing amazing work um, along with the Australian Embassy to convene a bunch of discussions here, right? But what we know about cooperation is that you're going to have all the strategic plans in the world and all the great commitments in D.C. and Canberra and Port Moresby, um, but the ones that really matter are the Port Moresby connections. So it's the people on the ground discussing, you know, who is funding what, who is approaching who, engaging with their Papua New Guinean counterparts as well. Um, So I think there are going to be major challenges, but back to Errol's point, you know, we're not talking massive bickies. To start here. Um, I think that uh, it's not going to be a significant problem immediately, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Um, And I think that the US and Australia offer each other something on this. Um, Australia has extensive Pacific expertise that just does not exist um, within the USAID infrastructure at the moment. That is really important. But Australia also offers a really Really important set of networks and and a slightly more subtle approach, right? Um, and I think that that's that's exciting for the US to take up. And from what I've seen, the US is quite open to doing so. Whether that works on the ground all the time, we all play nice, um, is is up for grabs. For what I mean, what's your take, Errol?
0: Look, look, I I I'm going to break out the popcorn here and watch how this plays out. I, I think because. This is going to be fascinating the u s like I think will you said and and Bridie, you've mentioned the u s is used to going into a country and being there for years and doing everything for everyone everywhere or at least trying and that's just not going to be the case here and i and I sense some excitement in my u s government friends who are responsible for the implementation of this in the in that idea that we're not the biggest game in town, in fact we're not even the in the top two or three probably. Um, not just in terms of the money, but I mean, we're building an embassy there there. I mean, we have a regional diplomatic presence. And I think this is we are not the biggest game in town. In fact, we're we're really not even a game in town right now. Um, and I think that's gonna be fascinating to see how we play, not just in the interagency, Department of Defense, State Department, USAID sandbox, but actually in this you know with our bilateral partners the australians the kiwis the you know japanese um with the multilaterals w- there's a lot of lip service in this global fragility conversation here in washington about leveraging and partnering with those those friends and allies and partners and i think more so than any of these other places that that we've you know mentioned in terms of these initial f- focus areas for the global fragility act More so than any of those in Papua New Guinea, that's going to have to be the case. Um, So far, the messaging is right. And that excitement, I think, that people feel is uh, palpable. You know, there was a senior U.S. government delegation that went to Port Mosby and stopped in Canberra on the way home. Uh, I think these are positive signals that that they're receiving these messages. Uh, The proof will be in the pudding in terms of when they actually start programming, whether We're able to and interested in doing joint funding or pooled funding on projects or whether we're actually willing to kind of come to the table with that anti-money laundering, you know, stuff uh, and capabilities that Bridie talked about. Um, Cautiously optimistic, but this is certainly something new for the United States.
1: It's probably worth just making mention that, you know, Errol and I have been sitting here poring over the fragility strategy, excitingly discussing potential in in Papua New Guinea. Um, But, you know, I've just come out of Canberra and no one's talking about this right? This was an announcement that was made a couple of months ago. It was in the pipeline previously, even where Washington was captured when this global fragility strategy passed and the global fragility act passed as well. Um, it just did not hit a single radar that I saw in Canberra. So maybe there's also a question here around not just whether or not the U S can play nicely, um, as, as the smaller game in town, but whether or not Australia is going to lean into this as well. Um, and I think that, that remains to be seen. Um, the U S is coming with a very different lens. Like I was saying on fragility, conflict prevention, this is not a big thing in Australia. Um, and, and I don't know how highly this, this work will rate on the U S government, sorry, the Australian government agenda.
0: Brady, I I love that I fooled you into thinking that the that Washington D.C. is super excited about fragility and and conflict prevention. I think maybe you and I. Just I all, <laughs> yeah, I I mean I've sort of been on the periphery of this peace-building advocacy world for for years, and and you know at times felt like I was screaming into a void, and so now we have a thing that we can hold on to, uh, and so that I think there's excitement. It's not necessarily. Uh, that that super tanker hasn't turned yet. We're still in the in the tugboat, you know, trying to trying to make it work. But yes, uh, I I love that you think that there's um, all this m- momentum here in Washington, Brady. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ask me again in eight weeks.
0: <laughs> well, that's
2: it. I suppose there's plenty of um, plenty of change and dynamism happening in both the American and and Australian systems around these issues. So it'd be excellent to have you both. Um, perhaps join us in you know in a little while uh, to reflect and evaluate these things as they progress but for the time being thank you both for um, dialing in to join us late in a um, DC evening and to share your remarkable insights with our audience so thank you both.
1: Thanks Will. Thanks Will.